Hello and welcome to the fifth and penultimate episode in our Destination Zero podcast series with me, James Murray, editor of Business Green. In the last episode, we looked at one of the key technologies being proposed to decarbonise industrial regions, carbon capture and storage, or CCS. Today, we're taking a deep dive into another critical technology, hydrogen. And we're going to be looking at the opportunities and challenges of using hydrogen to help decarbonise the economy, especially in those hard to abate sectors like heavy industry. From grey to blue to green hydrogen, there seems to be a rainbow of colours of the world's most abundant element that can often feel confusing. Over the course of the next 30 minutes, we're going to hear from experts and academics as they demystify the technology and explain the role that hydrogen can play in cutting carbon emissions and building a net zero emission economy. We'll cover the technology itself, the role of policy and how hydrogen can complement existing clean technologies, including renewables. But first, I spoke to Henrik Andersen, Vice President of Equinor's Low Carbon Solutions business in Norway, and Dan Sadler, Vice President of Low Carbon Solutions in the UK, to ask them to take us right back to the basics and what is hydrogen. Yeah, that's a good one. And going back to school is probably the right thing. It's like I always say when I really draw draw the big lines, hydrogen is like the mother of all atoms. All the molecules, atoms in our body, all originates from hydrogen from the Big Bang. But if I have to go a little bit back to Earth, so to speak, um, hydrogen is like the, the non-carbon twin to natural gas. So it has a lot of the same properties as natural gas, but when you burn it and use it, it doesn't emit any CO2. It only produces water. And I think that's the unique feature of hydrogen when we talk about uh, combating climate change. Why don't we use it more then? Because <laughs> it's—I mean—that sounds fantastic. You can use it like natural gas, but there's no carbon dioxide. That's the—that's the holy grail. Some might say. Why, why do we not see it uh, playing a bigger role currently in in our efforts to tackle climate change? I think the main reason is it doesn't exist naturally in the world. You need to produce it for some something else, like natural gas, like water for electrolysis, and so on. And that means that. It costs more money. It's it's you have efficiency laws, so on. So it's it's not naturally in our environment. And one of the big sort of reasons people are so excited about hydrogen, bring Dan in here, is is just the sheer flexibility of it as a fuel source. You know, the, the you know it can use use generate clean power. It can be used directly for heat um, and, and multiple potential applications. Um, Dan, could you just sketch out sort of some of those likely applications that you can see uh, for hydrogen in the energy transition? Yeah, I mean, the the great thing, James, is you know you name it, and and it can generally do it. So um, the 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 limit of hydrogen in the end use market, so in terms of replacing traditional fuels, is is almost unlimited. I mean, it, you can look at it as an application for decarbonisation of maritime, displacing diesel. Um, you can look at it for an application in the normal on road transport sector, for for example, for heavy goods, buses, garbage trucks, even cars. You could look at it as a replacement for natural gas in the heating sector, so potentially converting gas networks, as we demonstrated in our H21 North of England report. And you can also look at it for um, applications in power generation, so flexible power stations running on hydrogen, working alongside intermittent renewables. And of course, you can look at it for replacing industrial applications for industrial heat. So so the, the great thing with hydrogen is its diversity. You can produce a clean fuel incredibly low carbon footprint and fuels which almost any end use sector. So it's a it's an incredible opportunity for, for the low carbon economy. But the other thing that hydrogen does is you can store it so that you can produce it and store it so that you can use it when you actually need it. But, it, but it's true that still 
at an early stage a lot of this thinking. I mean, as you say, the technology, we know we can do it. The technology's there, but we're, we're not seeing it happen at scale as yet. I mean, what's needed to actually start delivering hydrogen and, and meeting what, as Dan said, is likely to be considerable demanding the coming years? Yeah, it is, as you say, it's an, technology has been existing for decades. It was, in fact, let's say, invented 100 years ago, and UK was one of the leaders in, in let's say, developing technology for converging fossil into hydrogen back in 1910, 1920. And we use hydrogen today in a lot of industries, but it's it's more like petrochemical uh, type of industry. So so the technology exists, more or less the things we're doing today is, or think about in salt and other processes, is converting, let's say, uh, application that use natural gas uh, in energy production from natural gas or other uh, sources to hydrogen. That is that is new. Um, it doesn't mean we, we cannot do it because it's existing. But I think the, the reason is that natural gas will is today cheaper than hydrogen. So it's not a technology. It's more like bridging, uh, let's say, the gap between the cost of natural gas and hydrogen. And that's where we need policy and commercial frame to, to create these uh, value chains. Absolutely. I mean, Dan, you, you, we've had a lot in this podcast series about the need for policy and for government to come on board. I mean, both in terms of the carbon capture side and the hydrogen side, what would you like to see? What's the what's needed to, to start getting these projects happening? Well, it's a combination of uh, business models and political will. Um, you know, the business models, what they are um, is, is a commercial framework. We have to think that these markets don't actually exist yet. And so when you're starting to produce new markets, you need a way of balancing the risk for the early movers. Um, but you also need a, w- a way to make them economically viable for the first movers. You know, you can't have a power station who, for example, is going to take the hydrogen who's who's then penalised against a power station who's using natural gas. So the business model is there to almost set a, set a, a competitive environment, a balanced environment for these nascent markets. Same with the CCS side of things. You need a you need a business model that can enable the CCS side of things, which allows companies to use it, which then drives the costs down. But but what we we need is the the tech the technological piece of the jigsaw are there. We need the policies that back up them business models, and we need the political belief to actually make the decisions to effectively push the buttons to to allow these projects to take a, an investment decision and to build the first projects, and from there we set the infrastructure and we're away. So a combination of commercial business models and political will. And I, and I think the other thing that we mustn't forget as well is public acceptability. We need the public to come on, to come with us on this journey. Um, this isn't a normal planning and consenting process because it's kind of new. We need to get into the hearts and minds of the public. But the public should see, feel proud of this. This is a... Uh, an international spotlight of opportunity, this hydrogen economy and CCS economy for the UK. Um, I'm from the Humber, which is where our first projects are. I live in Wakefield. And I think that we should really be proud of this as an opportunity for for the region and for the nation. If you ask most people in the street, if they think of hydrogen at all, um, it's as something very explosive. Um, you know, it's in the folk memory, the airship that tragically blew up and, and set back the first attempt at a hydrogen economy by by decades, if if not almost to today, in many ways. Um, I mean, how how significant do you think that public acceptance challenge is, and and what do you do to go about tackling it? 
Well, I think the first thing I'd say is if you ask people in my street, they wouldn't say that. <laughs> but my street's maybe not representative of most UK streets. But um, I also don't think that most people would actually, you know, reference the, the Hindenburg, which is what you're talking about there. I think most people actually would have very little understanding. And that's the problem. But I think the bigger problem is that most people would have very little understanding of the challenge of climate change, you know, and what it really takes to effectively transition an entire energy system in less than 30 years. So I think the education piece has to be stepped up on all levels, understanding of the challenge, then understanding of the options. I think the great thing with the UK strategy is starting in the industrial clusters. Industrial clusters are used to this type of chemical industry, this process industry. So the people in there often work on these type of process applications. So I think that's a logical place to start. And when you start in them type of areas, you, you, people understand the technology better. And then what you can start to do is educate more to get that consensus of opinion. Because what we want is not just one group of people understanding it. We want everybody to understand it, understand its necessity, back it and be proud of it and some go further still and say that it, you know it could lock us in and keep us reliant on fossil fuels at a time when we want to be shifting away um what's what's your take on on those those potential concerns oh i think i think we will have the need for both solutions i don't think blue hydrogen will will create a lock-in situation that will somehow make it more difficult for green hydrogen to to penetrate market in fact i believe the of the opposite that blue hydrogen will somehow enable green hydrogen to grow quicker into the market and scale up quicker and most likely what we'll see uh, particularly with the, with the let's say the expecting expectation that that renewable cost will go down is that you will see green hydrogen will grow as we enter into the 2040 2050 faster and faster and we we'll probably end maybe in the 2050 at the same situation that we have today where the primary source of like in power sector, where the primary source of power comes from renewable, and and the gas is the the way you are flexing and and, and let's say covering the times when when renewables not uh, let's say when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. We will see the same within hydrogen, I think, where blue will will back or green, but initially blue will be like the market built backbone that the green will grow upon. I think that that is a, a fundamental in 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 our approach and how we see the world. I'm not a, a UK uh, citizen, uh, but uh, I look a little bit from the outside. But I really see this is, of course, it's about meeting net zero. But I also think this is a unique opportunity for UK to really position themselves in a new business. It's a little bit similar as Denmark and, and the wind, where they were early mover, created its own home market, creating a wind industry. UK have a little bit of the same opportunities because we can do CSS, we can do Blue Hub, we can convert our industry using hide in a CSS, it, it, you can have its own home market where they can create this new business opportunity that can then expand globally and, and really, really evolve. I think that, that's a unique thing. Next up, I spoke to Dr. Jamie Spears, a fellow in energy analysis and policy at Imperial College London. I started by asking him about the flexibility of hydrogen as a fuel, given its ability to be used in fuel cells or by burning it directly. Yeah, that's correct. Many of the proposals that look at using hydrogen for home heating, for example, um, envisage delivering gas to a home where it would be um, burned in a boiler, very similar to the natural gas boiler that people are familiar with. Um, in vehicles, um, it's expected that we will use it in fuel cells, although there are combustion uh, 
engines that can run on hydrogen, but um, the most of the uh, uh, forward-looking uh, analyses look at hydrogen in fuel cells in vehicles. And increasingly, that's looking more towards um, uh, long-distance haulage, transportation of uh, goods, longer distances, shipping, for example, might be an area where hydrogen could be very useful. So much we can talk to you. Let's maybe start at the beginning here with with how you produce the hydrogen. You know, the different approaches. There's a whole sort of rainbow of different colours that reference to hydrogen. But the primary debate is often about green versus blue. Um, I mean, can you just explain what those two terms refer to and and what are the pros and cons of these these two different approaches? Yeah, and I'd, I'd say it very much as a pros and cons. Often those two are pitted against each other as a versus debate. And that's probably not that useful because uh, you know sometimes the debate then polarizes and we talk about um, which one we should choose. Actually, the future is more likely to be a combination of both of these. But um, if we broadly summarize that as producing hydrogen from a fossil fuel, natural gas, in the instance of blue hydrogen, and then making that low carbon by capturing the CO2 that's emitted when you do that. And for green hydrogen, we're looking at making hydrogen through electrolysis using electricity that we produce through renewables. So the, pr the prospects for that to be very low emissions uh, are, are good, um, but you can have very low emissions uh, blue hydrogen if you do things well, and you can also have quite high emissions green hydrogen if uh, the supply chain that produces your renewable energy um, has uh, embodied carbon associated with it. What's the challenge with, as you say, what's what's the outlook for green hydrogen? What's the challenge there? Because is it, is it just that we need the renewable power elsewhere and, and there's competition for it? Or is, are there other issues in, you know, it, from a layman's perspective, it, electrolysis is something we're all taught about at school. It, it would seem like this is something we could do. Yeah, it's, I mean, certainly none of these challenges um, are uh, technically unproved. Um, we, we know how to do these things. The question is, how can we do them commercially? How can we do them at scale without them being prohibitively expensive or without them getting in the way of other things that we might do. And, and there are a number of challenges on both sides, but for, for green hydrogen specifically, um, we want to use renewable electricity. But as we know, we already have a very large demand for renewable electricity to do the things that electricity is already planning to do. Um, electric vehicles or heat pumps in homes, those are going to demand a lot of electricity and we are um, already, you know, pedal to the floor trying to meet renewable electricity targets. If we then want to move more renewable electricity into the production of hydrogen, and uh, then we're kind of uh, compounding the problem of, of increasing the scale of renewables very quickly. So that's one of the challenges. But also we, we're, we're dealing with a, a, a electrochemical process of producing hydrogen from water in an electrolyzer. Um, there are expense issues with that, that, that costs more than, than uh, it, it does uh, to produce blue hydrogen at the moment. And that's something that we need to push down the learning curve so we can make that cheaper. Um, and so there's a kind of chicken and egg problem here where we really want to start building electrolyzers at greater and greater scale and um, to move the costs down. But costs are, are, are prohibitive at the moment and makes it unpalatable for people to pursue. So we're not getting um, nearly the amount of research or um, demonstration and deployment of large um, commercial scale electrolyzers. So that's a, those are things that we need to, to do. They're not um, technical challenges in that we understand the processes and we understand um, a lot about the materials, but we need to try and do it in a way that helps uh, increase the scale and drive down the cost curve so that it can be 
competitive with the existing costs of energy. There's a concern amongst some green groups that the the pursuit of blue hydrogen in particular is is kind of a cover for allowing allowing for continued investment in fossil fuel infrastructure, continued exploration at a time when they'd argue we just need to be getting off fossil fuels altogether. Um, I mean, you, you, there's obviously a, a critique that you'll be well aware of. I mean, what's your response to those those quite deeply held concerns? Yeah, I think that it's uh, it's important to to uh, you know keep uh, the feet to the fire of anybody who's uh, involved in this space. It would be very easy to do hydrogen badly and to have hydrogen blue or green and um, not uh, as low carbon as we would like uh, and then um, detract from the value that hydrogen um, could play. It's a very similar argument to the arguments that have um, dogged CCS uh, for a long time. Um, CCS in the electricity uh, space um, in electricity production has long been seen by some groups as a way to defend continued use of fossil fuels. Um, and that is one way to look at it. Um, another way to look at it is that it might be uh, the, the first move in a, a longer transition that might help develop a hydrogen economy, supply chains and the whole system around hydrogen, of which there's lots still to be demonstrated at scale. Um, and that might provide the impetus to move in that direction um, with lower carbon forms of hydrogen filling in uh, as the economy develops and as our understanding of the technologies improves. One of the interesting things about it is the idea of clustering it in these areas where there is heavy industry. And, th and there does seem to be a growing consensus that if we're going to use hydrogen for anything, the, the top priority should be some of these industrial processes that we can't decarbonize in other ways. I mean, could you just give us a little bit of insight into how you would see hydrogen being used in, in those regions? The industrial challenge is to decarbonize the, the processes, as you say, that are quite hard to decarbonize. Um, high temperature process heat is a key example that's often discussed. It's quite hard to raise very high temperatures uh, for these processes using electricity alone. Um, you could use natural gas and you could uh, capture the CO2 um, uh, through as, as part of that process. Um, but you could also use hydrogen for the, that same purpose. Um, and there might also be fringe benefits to clustering hydrogen in that way. And some of the UK demonstration project proposals um, look at using hydrogen in these industrial clusters and feeding some of that hydrogen down into surrounding gas networks that could then be used in other parts of the economy and potentially for heating homes, uh, for uh, refueling vehicles uh, and that kind of clustering effect can help with your scale cost issues. It can, it can help anchor a sufficient demand to have a large enough production site that could help lower costs. Uh, and if, if, if you can cluster in that way, um, then it might be a good way to get things up and running um, to, to start uh, small uh, kernels of activity. In the example of the UK, that could be a, a few sites around the UK industrial hubs uh, that could then start feeding feeding down into the rest of the energy economy, um, transporting hydrogen further and further afield as the as we drive costs down and as we uh, increase the understanding and the and the support for um, hydrogen as a vector. Within government, you know, we we've had we've got a tough economic outlook. Um, inflation's high. Uh, the government is worried about its fiscal 
position after years of COVID. And there are voices within government, within the Treasury that sort of say, how do we do it? We want to do net zero, but how do we do it on the cheap? We can't afford billions of pounds of, of whether it's policy support or direct funding support for what are still quite early stage projects. And, and they're very, very worried about the cost impact. And then that feeds into the politics with some, some political voices calling for us to go slower on this agenda. Um, what's the pitch to the, the Treasury and those within government to say, hang on, you know, A, we need to continue with net zero as a whole, and B, there's got to be support and action on hydrogen within that if we are to achieve these goals? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the first thing is, of course, you know, regardless of, of what's happening in the economy, uh, regardless of what's happening with other global issues, climate change isn't going away. Um, and despite the the progress that's been made, particularly on electricity, um, we're only a few steps down this long journey and there's plenty to be done. And in fact, some of the more challenging parts of the story are yet to come. Um, we've got a lot to do with, on long distance transport. We've got a lot to do um, on heating and we've got a lot to do in terms of um, you know, bringing the whole world along. And because, you know, it, despite uh, uh, the issues of, of funding this in the UK, there are other parts of the world where it, it's harder to fund still and where very, very large proportions of future emissions are likely to come from. Um, so it's something that's that's not going to go away, uh, and uh, it's not a problem that can be solved by saving money now to pay it down later, because the problem gets more expensive. My final guest is Una O'Grady, Head of Hydrogen Development at SSE Thermal. We've previously spoken to Una in episode one, but I wanted to hear her views on the role that hydrogen can play to complement a diverse and mixed portfolio of energy sources, including renewables. I think the, the first point is with regards to the net zero transition, we're going to need an, a number of technologies. Um, yes, it is going to be led by uh, renewables like offshore wind and, and solar, um, but we are going to need a, a number of solutions. So particularly hydrogen and hydrogen fuel offers the opportunity for fuel switching for hard to abate industries, um, the, the likes steel and the, the, the likes of high intensity uh, heat requirements for industry um, who probably don't have the option of some of the other solutions. Um, so hydrogen together with a number of, of other technologies, they are all going to be required uh, for us to reach net zero. With regards to hydrogen in power in, in particular, which I suppose I am most closest to, um, hydrogen and CCS are, are two options that will allow us to decarbonize flexible power generation. And obviously flexible power generation is going to be exceptionally important to back up or complement renewable energy uh, as we move into a, a low carbon world. For those who aren't close to the science, the key thing here is that this is a zero emission fuel. You can put it through a fuel cell, you can burn it, and you just don't get the carbon emissions that you get with natural gas and other fossil fuels. That is the core upside here, isn't it? Yes, I think uh, one of the key benefits of the, the hydrogen uh, technology in particular is its cross-sectoral benefit. So some solutions will work for certain industries, but hydrogen is a solution that can work right across the, the value chain. Um, and I think that can be no more evident than within the Humber 
uh, cluster where there are proposals around hydrogen for heat, hydrogen in power between ourselves and, and Equinor, um, but also for other industrial practices um, across the region. Is it, it's worth uh, unpacking here some of the challenges, though, because there, there are challenges with hydrogen. Um, some would argue that there are plenty of challenges that hydrogen needs to overcome. For example, it's, it's currently much more expensive than other fuels. Uh, there are concerns about how you can produce it, particularly at scale. Uh, some people worry it distracts from renewables development. What, what do you see as the, the main challenges for hydrogen and how can the sector work to overcome them? Well, I think that the first point is with regards to the the the, the price of hydrogen. Um, so what we have seen over the, the last year in particular is the government's thinking on hydrogen business models with a consultation just released in the last number of months. And that's going to be exceptionally important to the, the um, I suppose, the growth of a hydrogen economy economy is by setting the foundations of having very clear business models that incentivize investment, um, but also ensure that any um, subsidies or support for these technologies are put on the, the right part of, of the um, government model. And therefore, that's going to be a key area of collaboration between uh, government and industry partners to ensure we get that right from the beginning so that the investment will flow with regards to the, um, I suppose, the sustainability credentials of, of hydrogen, yes, ultimately, we would like to get to, to green hydrogen, but just like everything in the uh, path to net zero, there is a transition to, to be made. And what blue hydrogen in particular, or low carbon hydrogen uh, gives us, is the ability to make a, a roadway into um, uh, abatement, um, particularly in the industry sector, by allowing us produce hydrogen at scale and making that impact within, within emissions this decade and next decade as we work towards the ability to scale up green hydrogen. Do, do we need gas though? Because should we be investing in gas at all when it still does currently result in those carbon emissions? I mean, one of the big questions that we've had around hydrogen particularly hydrogen made from gas is that you know that that would be good to have it at zero emissions but we're a long way off from doing that particularly at scale and therefore we need to be phasing out gas quicker than the timelines that we have currently in in SSE um with our renewables arm obviously we see the 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 energy system being a renewables led energy system moving forward but what about when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine? We still need low carbon power um, on being fed onto the system. And what CCS and hydrogen offer is that backup and that complementary and two technologies that can provide in a cost effective way compared to some of the other solutions that backup and complementary power. Um, the same is, is said for other parts of the industry. So with regards to the use of hydrogen in in industry and and in heat in in the future we do see the the benefits of that um I, and and i suppose in in reality is it all comes down to the point i made at the the very beginning is that all solutions are required to get to net zero it is a mammoth challenge and a mammoth task but we cannot rely on one technology alone and we need num numerous complementary technologies. But what we have in hydrogen is potentially one with the right business models that can be that complementary technology, can work across multiple uh, sectors and subject to the, the right business models can be done in a cost effective way.
I hope you agree that was a really interesting episode and it makes clear the range of technological solutions and options that are available to us today and in the future, hopefully the near future. A huge thanks to my guests, Henrik Anderson, Dan Sattler, Dr. Jamie Spears and Una O'Grady. And you can join me next time for the last episode in this podcast series, where we're going to be taking a step back and looking at the UK's roadmap to net zero in 2050. I'll be joined by some fantastic guests, including Chris Stark, CEO of the UK Committee on Climate Change, and a host of leading policymakers within government, as we discuss the next steps the UK must take to ensure we meet our climate targets by mid-century at the latest. Thanks again for listening.